0: Hello and welcome to this new episode of The Scroll Podcast. I'm Giorgio Constandi and today we are talking with Dr. Piro Reshepi. Dr. Reshepi's research focuses on decoloniality, sexuality and Islam in the Balkans he was also a founding member of the Balkan Queer Collective. Today we are talking about uh, his new book, White Enclosures, Racial Capitalism and Coloniality Along the Balkan Route. Piro, it's a pleasure to see you. It's good, always.
1: To, good to see you too. How are you? I'm good, thanks. <laughs>
0: um, before we like talk about anything nitty-gritty, detail-y from the book. I wanted to actually start by asking you, how did you come up with the title? Because I found the title quite um, powerful. Uh, White Enclosures, that first bit in particular. Um, How did you come up with it? Where, Where did that come from?
1: So I was thinking about what the Balkan... the closure of the Balkan route did um during the refugee cri- or the so-called refugee crisis between 2014 and 2018 mostly and so then when the EU Turkish deal came up um the Balkan route was closed of course which meant that migrants that were coming from North Africa and the Middle East had to find new routes to get to Europe more dangerous routes of course through the Mediterranean and so I thought, okay, so the the Balkan the closure of the Balkan route provides some degree of um, a cordon sanitaire, so to speak, for the European Union to prevent the arrival of more refugees. But I was interested in what it actually does locally, and locally across the region, it re intensifies these claims to um, Europe. And European integration, and it's usually used in exchange for, I mean, strengthening borders and strengthening border policies are used in exchange for EU integration. And I thought white enclosures because the the enclosure of the Balkan route does several things. It integrates uh, nominally white post-socialist um, Balkan Eastern European people into the EU to tackle migration control, but also demand for cheap labor within the EU. And so then I started to think along the lines of what other global political projects is the EU border along the Balkans and in the Mediterranean connected to? And it's also, and, and the technologies that are used to kind of enforce these borders, how they emerge, and in what context. And I I started to realize that a lot of what's happening in the Balkans is also happening along the U.S.-Mexico border. And so this is part and parcel, in my mind, of the Transatlantic Security Project, which is more or less U.S. and EU projects of creating a global... Uh, border enclosure around what they claim to be white territories i mean of course implicitly because explicitly the project is articulated along liberal liberal internationalist discourse of you know human rights democracy and all that but in essence it's a racial border in as much as it seeks to secure the demographic economic and political supremacy of white populations within this enclosure from a global perspective. And so yeah. I mean in hindsight, I I I probably would have chosen a different title for the book. Oh really? You know?
0: Okay. Do you have any other
1: like which other titles were you thinking about? I mean I don't know because I think it's it's like the maybe the subtitle, I think I do address racial capitalism in the sense that I do talk about carceral regimes that have emerged and um, economies around uh, refugee camps and the extraction and exploitation of refugee labor is all part and parcel of racial capitalist attempts that um, seek to kind of extract um, labor from vulnerable populations like the refugees but also roma communities as well um but i think people expected to see more about migration considering that i'm not talking about the balkans per se but rather about the balkan Balkan route. route, yeah and maybe there isn't enough on migration but i mean that's also something that i want to expand on Mm. or that i'm working on now rather Mm. Mm. um But yeah, but titles being what they are, I mean, academic book titles are like... um, (laughs) (laughs) It's hit and miss, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: How did you find the writing process for this?
1: Um, I mean, I was lucky enough to have a two-year fellowship at the Max Planck Institute for the study of um, religious and ethnic diversity in Germany. Mm -hmm. And even though... I was kind of miserable the entire time I was there because, of course, it's Germany. (laughs) It did give me enough time and space to write. Yeah. Because you have to... I mean, I had done research in the field um, since I started my PhD in 2008. So I had all this research, but I hadn't had a chance to kind of sit down and write it in part because of the precarious nature of academic life today where you have to constantly apply for jobs and move from one place to another and apply from one job to another. And those two years were good because they allowed me to kind of sit down and write everything that I had been meaning to write. Um, And I don't necessarily have a writing practice. So, um, I mean, if I I can call it a practice, essentially I I wait until the last moment. moment. (laughs) But I think what really... Uh, pushed me was when I managed to get a book contract then I realised I have to sit down and write the yeah, book and yeah. I did uh, so that was helpful
0: yeah I'm a bit like that I mean I have not written anything academic like you have but um, when I I will either wait for the, until the last minute or until someone until I know someone's expecting yeah, something yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um, okay well one of the one of my favourite quotes from this from your book is Um, And this is something that you have spoken about um, in other podcasts. So, you know, I wanted to get it out of the way first and then we can move on to other things. Um, But it's when it's this quote, the normalisation of post-socialist racist politics has gone hand in hand with the EU and NATO's Eastern Expansion. Um, I think to most people listening uh, and to me, that quote makes a lot of sense. I do want to play devil's advocate though. I want to uh, imagine that I am someone who um, really believes that the EU is um, has helped my country uh, to uh, quote unquote progress with human rights, um, and I, you know. Uh, emphasize the fact that NATO's intervention in the Balkans in the 90s um, prevented uh, further atrocities from taking place. What examples would you point someone with that sort of viewpoint to um, so they may rethink how they understand the EU and
1: NATO? So I think, I mean, that's a very interesting question. And I think one way of looking at eastern enlargement of the EU. And the expansion of NATO in Eastern Europe is from that perspective, which would be a perspective that while joining the European Union comes with certain benefits, economic but also political ones, because it supposedly offers political stability and economic stability, and everybody wins. Um, well, one that hasn't necessarily been the case, right? But the other important point here is that. What is, the Euro- what is the European Union and the NATO project mean politically? The way in which the debates around the EU have been framed, especially in Western Europe, is this idea of Euroskeptics versus believers in the EU project. And so we generally are left to assume that those people who are against the EU project are far-right populists like the ones that we've seen emerge throughout Europe and the ones that dominated the discourse on Brexit in the UK. Um, But the truth is that that tension is not necessarily real, in part because the European Union assimilated the far-right project. Uh, The the far-right project did not go away. It became part of mainstream politics in part because uh, mainstream parties had to uh, assimilate it into their politics to be able to win elections. I mean, France is a very good example of this. Um, and so, But that's, that's how the EU discourse emerges within the EU. But I think in Eastern Europe, we have a different kind of discourse because the idea of joining the European Union was always a far-right project in as much as it was a fulfillment of the fantasy of far-right and fascist formations who believe that socialism misaligned them from their racial community right and so what you see in Hungary what you see in Bulgaria um, what you see all over the Balkans frankly is this discourse that uh, we are Europeans and we belong to Europe and we're not against the European Union on the contrary We are for stronger Europe and stronger borders. And so that's what I mean by the expansion of the European Union further east has given birth to far-right and fascist formations, in part because it has fulfilled these far-right political claims. And so is it accidental, for instance, that although I don't go into this in the book, but it's worth mentioning, that... The current far right government in Hungary was the darling of the European Union in the nineties. Um, and so what it has done is is it has unleashed um this wave of racism and islamophobia, but also misogyny and sexism, of course, because those things all go hand in hand um, by virtue of reaffirming the idea of whiteness and that belonging to whiteness is the only project that would redeem the post-socialist precarious conditions. Um, So I think it's complicated because, I mean, of course, um, as you say, like NATO intervened in Kosovo and intervened in Bosnia as well. And I think those interventions need to be taken more seriously and discussed in a more uh, situated context because clearly um, there is the other end or other extreme of the argument which you also come across in the Balkans but especially in places like Serbia um, Greece Mm -hmm. whereby NATO is just another form of US imperialism trying to destroy some sort of um Idyllic socialist or pan-orthodox, depending on which mm-hmm. camp you talk to, mm-hmm. um, uh, political uh, let's say community, which obviously didn't exist, but in their imagination, that's what I, I mean the other there's another third group, which is the Yugoslav nostalgic renderings of NATO intervention as u s imperialism, and so it's important to acknowledge that all of these things are. Um, uh, relevant in the discussion Um, but I think my concern was what it does more broadly in the region Um, and so I'm not so interested in kind of going back to discuss let's say the legality or um, uh, rather the NATO intervention in Kosovo was Uh, an imperial act of violence or not I mean of course it was an imperial act of violence but uh, when you are facing genocide um, you don't necessarily have the comfort of choice of choosing what political alliances you're going to make especially considering that in the case of Kosovo almost the entire population of Kosovo Albanian population of Kosovo was kicked out of Kosovo in a matter of a couple of months and in the case of Bosnia I mean you work on Srebrenica so I don't have to tell you Mm -hmm. Um, and so these are of course complicated constellation of empire but it's also not unusual because empires work uh, uh, historically in this form and you can see this kind of imperial interventions across the post-colonial world I mean the partition in India the Uh, genocide in Rwanda uh, the civil war in the Democratic Republic of Congo these are all part and parcel uh, conflicts created by uh, by imperial incision, imperial interventions but also post-colonial politics of uh, partition, racialization ethnicity and population exchange as is the case between Greece and Turkey which became Mm -hmm. sort of Um, an instrument of international relations in the interwar period Um, so I don't think uh, the Balkans are an exception in any way, in this sense and naturally there will be various forms, or rather various arguments around which people will build their political positions but I think um, fundamentally what it has promoted is a racial and a racist discourse that um people in the balkans unlike the refugees unlike the roma and unlike the muslims deserve to be part of the european union and um um be receive the privileges of being in the european union because they are white towards the end of the book i believe in the afterword i mention uh, a slogan that was used by albanian students in 2019 during the student protests and for me that slogan is so telling of the kind of uh, political demands that are being made uh, in the context of European integration and the slogan says something along the lines of you know we are receiving um, Afghan salaries um, we are living in African conditions um, but we are a European race and so what the slogan essentially says is that we are European and therefore we shouldn't be subjected to the same thing that mm. to the same sort of racialization um, exclusion and violence that people in Afghanistan or people in Africa are mm. um, that's, the ki- that's the kind of effect that uh, Eastern European or rather EU enlargement into Eastern Europe mm. has had mm. And those are the kind of politics it has propelled mm. beyond the um, <clears throat> beyond the isolated issues around military intervention or uh, international administration, mm. which are problematic in and of their own right. In the sense that it also these two cases of Kosovo and Bosnia that you mentioned are also important to think about. Why is it that It's not the perpetrator of violence that gets placed under international administration, which in this case was Serbia, Mm -hmm. but rather it's the victim of that violence that gets placed under international administration. Mm. And so that's also very telling about the kind of political project that is enacted in Muslim-majority spaces in the Balkans, as opposed to the kind of sovereignty that is awarded to the other countries, Mm. which are believed to be more trustworthy mm. of the EU project uh, rather than Kosovo Bosnia or Albania mm. let's say mm. and is it also accidental that these countries so it happens remain outside of the EU mm. but like in this constant um, push and pull um, that is underlined by continuous reassurances that you will at some point join the European Union and um, the EU too despite your Islam are white Mm -hmm. but somehow you're also not Mm -hmm. Um, and so what the imperial project does in that sense and what that intervention does I think it's uh, important to also consider what it does for the EU Mm -hmm. um, rather than what it does for Bosnians and for Albanians and um, Kosovo I mean especially considering what's going on there when what we essentially see is a suspended uh, sovereignty um, constant questioning of the sovereignty of these countries um, as questionable entities as entities that shouldn't be there yeah Uh, and so I think that's also a product of the interventions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so the saving missions and saving narratives come along with um extended civilizational projects that are yep. no different from uh, civilizational projects um, in other parts of the world.
0: I played devil's advocate, so you would break it all down powerfully, and you did just that. Um, your book's full title is actually White Enclosures, Racial Capitalism and Coloniality Along the Balkan Route." Um so I'm perhaps guilty of emphasising just the first part at the beginning of this conversation Um, but you do talk at length about how both queer and migrant bodies trouble the borders of the Euro Atlantic enclosure I'm I have some questions specifically about queer bodies later on, but um, I wanted to just bring into focus some recent developments that uh, have taken place in the region. Uh, Last week, a damning investigation revealed WhatsApp messages between Croatian officials suggesting that they had been encouraging the violent and illegal pushbacks of migrants seeking asylum. Uh and then a few days ago the EU's ambassador to Bosnia, Mr. Johan Sattler, met with officials in the northwestern town of um city of Bihar uh, to confirm and discuss EU funding for a prison to be built in Bihać's uh Lipa detention centre where migrants seeking asylum are being detained. Um my question has two parts. Um firstly will I'll I'll actually I'll just present the first part on its own. How do these two examples um, that I've highlighted fit into the argument that you make in your book that migrant bodies trouble the Euro-Atlantic border?
1: I mean, they they trouble the Euro-Atlantic border because they uh, arrive and are able to uh, mix with local population. To which extent this happens, I mean, it's always hard to say. But the fact is that there is a securitization discourse or securitization of bodies moving through the Balkans that polices very closely where, sorry, the refugees are going and how they're making their passage. Um, So it's not to contaminate local Muslim communities where supposedly radical Islamist ideas So that's one part of the discourse that emerges out of security agendas that seek to securitize the region, to kind of proof seal it, so to speak. And the other one about the messages that you mentioned about pushbacks, I mean, is it accidental that the pushbacks from Croatia are back to Bosnia, and so the pushbacks from Greece are to Turkey? And so the question here is, well, why is it that they're not being pushed back to Slovenia? Or why is it that Bosnia emerges as sort of a safe space for them, actually, to the extent that even neighboring countries believe that they should all be lodged in Bosnia? And the EU is building camps there as well. And so there's tension between these two issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason the EU is building camps is, of course, because it wants these populations to be isolated. Mm. If you notice, for instance, the EU is less invested in building such uh, camps away from urban areas because the Lipa camp is quite far from Bihaj. Um, As opposed to refugees in Greece who, until very recently, um, and by this I mean until before the pandemic, moved quite freely around Greece and they weren't necessarily confined into carceral spaces I mean now that's happening in Greece too mm-hmm. but the fact that Bosnia becomes this central node where most of these prison camps essentially are being built mm-hmm. um, is illustrative of um, the kind of fears that emerge in the minds of EU policy um, analysts who think that if the refugees are allowed to move freely in bosnia that kind of mixture would not would derail the eu integration process mm. or the european agenda mm. if that makes sense yeah it does make
0: sense and it sort of leads nicely onto the second part of the question which is then why does the bosnian state participate in such violence
1: well the bosnian state participates in such violence for the same reason that all the countries along the balkan route participate in the violence Um, they are all bankrolled by EU funding and they're all desperate for EU funding and they're all desperate to join the European Union because most political parties in the region have been promising that to their citizens for nearly three decades now. And as it happens, building carceral refugee spaces becomes a very good vessel and facilitator of EU integration. And so in exchange for that, like I mentioned in the beginning, um, there's more, so for instance, Kosovo now, uh, starting in January, I believe, 2024, Kosovars will have a freedom of movement within the EU. Um, so there is a, a push to further integration, and that push to further integration is in exchange for tighter border and migrant control within your mm. countries. Mm. And this isn't necessarily only in post-Yugoslav spaces. I mean, you see the same thing happening in Albania and Bulgaria mm-hmm. as well. Even though Bulgaria is a member state, mm. the benefits of containing migrants um, in the Balkans and preventing them from reaching further into the EU, the financial benefits of it um, are good enough for these countries to facilitate that kind of mm enclosure Mm. um so it's not surprising that the bosnian state does this like i said because it has an interest in it and those interests uh, are not just of the state i mean there's an entire industry that's built around these camps like i mentioned so there's also um profitable it seems like a profitable enterprise um and if the enterprise is building carceral camps, then mm. um, clearly yeah, um, the state will facilitate that kind of profitability that I'm, is bankrolled again by the EU. Uh, I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, we've, we've been seeing the same thing in Greece since the start of the pandemic. And I've yeah. spoken to uh, several human rights groups in Greece um, and they've echoed much of what you've said. Um, and we've also seen it in places like Morocco, uh, yeah. where you know the Spanish authorities and the Moroccan authorities have been collaborating to basically keep migrants who are seeking asylum out of Spain and the eu
1: of course, and Tunis is another great example mm. because I think a couple of months ago the Tunisian president made made this statement that the problem of the Mediterranean are black people, and you would be shocked to hear this coming from a Tunisian president um, in the sense that you would think that Tunisia being part of the African Union and having a considerable black minority, but maybe not unsurprisingly so because in part, you you sort of see what's happened in the Balkans for the last 20, 30 years also happening in North Africa, intensifying racist discourses mm. um, through EU border through the externalization of EU border regimes Mm. and I think Sudan is something that it's been on the news in the last couple of days and I think what's happening there it's also very uh, important to note that the uh, violence is being perpetrated by an established military that is sponsored by the EU and so these are all um, these are all Forms of externalization of borders, of course, but I think the way they operate in the Balkans, in part because the EU claims the Balkans as its territory, the uh, pressure for alignment of regional politics um, and populations with the European project is much higher.
0: Mm-hmm. You, in the book, you talk about. Um... And this is the final question on NATO, I promise. Uh, You talk about NATO's presence in the Balkans helping the US to somehow rebrand its relations with the Muslim world. Um, Paradoxically, you also explore how it's this conditional acceptance of Muslims in the Balkans um, into the Euro-Atlantic enclosure that has made Balkan Muslims more suspect in the eyes of the West. Um, Can you elaborate on this paradox for those who haven't yet read the book
1: so I mean we have to contextualize this um, in terms of what was happening when um, during the Sarajevo siege and Srebrenica and the war in Kosovo in the broader uh, European but also world context and one thing that is happening is the emergence of the Islamic threat um, and I mean of course this it intensifies after nine eleven, 11 but the Kosovo war is addressed by many US um, academics and policy wonks as a proof that um, the U.S. is not has nothing against the Muslim world. As a matter of fact, here are um, Muslims who are in love with the United States because the United States saved them, right? And so, in order to sustain that, uh, let's call it love affair, um, between the nominally Muslim, nominally white, um, secular. Albanians in the Balkans, um, this project had to continuously be reiterated. And the way it was done, it's interesting because it also reveals how Albanian diaspora in the United States, for instance, was continuously pressured by the US administration to send one and one message only to the Albanian resistance in Kosovo, that you either align yourself with the Euro-Atlantic project, in case you're flirting with some other political project, of course, or we leave you at the mercy of the Serbs. And if we leave you at the mercy of the Serbs, the example that you have to see is Srebrenica and the siege in Sareva. And there's a very interesting talk by um Joe Biden, who's now obviously the president of the U.S., but then was the senator um, um, and I think chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee Mm. in the Senate, um, who's talking to the Albanian diaspora in the Bronx and practically saying to them, um, you have to make this choice now to either join um, the West um, or uh, remain outside of its borders uh, forever. Which is very, I mean, which is very interesting, uh, considering that as Joe Biden was saying this to Albanians that they should join the West by joining Europe and NATO, at the same time he was sponsoring the 1994 Crime Bill, which would intensify the carceralization of people of color, but predominantly Black Americans. In the United States and I don't think that these processes are unrelated Mm. namely that the uh, international desire to build a white enclosure in the post Cold War moment to integrate all white people so to speak into one political entity while policing racialized communities within the enclosure are part and parcel of a kind of thinking that dominated the 90s and i think it still dominates euro atlantic the euro atlantic project the only thing that has changed of course it's the language because normally i mean they would have become aware that they can't be as blunt as they were in the 90s about the project Mm. and so increasingly the project is justified like i said along human rights and democracy but if you look at the 90s discourse when the project started um, it's very uh, it's it's very clearly stated in its aims I mean like uh, Francois Mitterrand the French president as I mentioned in the book comments very casually about the fact that yes what's happening in Bosnia is bad but it's a necessary reunification and rebirth of Christian Europe mm. these are the kind of lenses and imaginaries through which um, Western European and American uh, politicians who uh, set into motion the Euro-Atlantic project and the uh, EU and NATO Eastern expansion saw the region of. Mm. Um, And to, 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 to further go into the context of the time when the project emerges... In academia, you also have the dominance of civilizational thinking. I mean, Samuel Huntington's Clashes of Civilizations becomes one of the most dominant books in the end of history uh, by Francis Fukuyama. And these are trends that illustrate the kind of racial division of the world. And of course, the Balkans becomes a generative reference for that thinking because it's a liminal space in these very clearly defined or seemingly clear definitions of where whiteness begins and where racial others start. Mm. Um, And so it's not accidental that so much um, work was done on the Balkans in the 90s in sort of uh, sorting out Um, And I have to say one more thing. Sorry, I know I'm taking too long. No, no, you're not. This set me thinking about also the complicity of area studies academics who uh, worked alongside this political project. Um, It was not unusual for area studies anthropologists from Europe and the United States to come to the Balkans and study Muslim communities and to which extent Muslim communities were being radicalized by new influences uh, that were coming from the Middle East and, you know, elusively always addressed as the Arab world Mm. and the impact that those influences may have Mm. on the EU integration of the region. And I think...
0: When was this happening?
1: So this was in the 90s, right? And so you have a lot of... uh, Uh, anthropological and ethnographic work that focuses on how um, Muslims in Bulgaria or Macedonia or Bosnia or Kosovo or Serbia are becoming more religious and how this is a warring trend and they're becoming radicalized and that this is not in line with their supposed traditional and more secular and more European practices of Islam Mm -hmm. and so these are not separate projects they're part and parcel of the same Euro-Atlantic project and so the area studies academic knowledge production was very much invested in this in part because the state department was sponsoring um projects that were looking into Mm. uh into these communities and so the securitization of muslim communities in the balkans starts I mean, of course, it, there's, there's a securitization process that starts in socialism that I mentioned in the book with the Sarajevo trial process. But in the post Cold War moment, it starts with defining the borders and then dealing with the others who have to be dealt with, who remain inside these borders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that attention from academia was also very damaging in how the genocide and violence on Muslim bodies was justified. Mm-hmm by various arguments that well we have to secure the borders Mm. and we have to make sure that the only kind of Islam that we have in the Balkans is a European whitewashed Mm. secular kind Mm -hmm. of Islam and also because we want to make sure that connections between Muslims in the Balkans and the Middle East um, become um, less possible um, just because they may uh, generate a kind of political project that may not be aligned with the European o- orientation mm. of the region.
0: Well, this now makes me think of um, what you what you talk about in the book in terms of uh, uh, this very similar rhetoric in Yugoslavia. Um, you know this this fear of Muslims in Yugoslavia. Uh, you know being connected or too connected to um, other forms of practicing Islam from the Middle East. Um, you talk about and um, i have some specific questions about the details behind that but let's start with a slightly broader question on that you talk about there uh, being a tendency to whitewash the continuity between pre-socialist and socialist racism towards albanians in yugoslavia uh, but also roma and muslims in places like but not exclusively uh, yugoslavia um can you elaborate
1: on that so i think there's several issues there and I think there's several currents in um, Balkan political networks and academic networks that I guess I'm responding to Um, considering how miserable the Euro-Atlantic integration project has turned out to be uh, people are um, thinking but also the fact that there's global changes that we can't deny happening um, uh, the desire for an alternative political project is there clearly and a lot of the uh, political a lot of the proponents of a different reading of the non-aligned movement as an alternative to the region and regional politics in general, but I would say Yugoslav and post-Yugoslav context more specifically, is to uh, rethink the non-aligned project through um, the lenses of potentiality that that project may have for the contemporary moment. And I think those reflections are very important, But I think what's important is to always remember, and I think here is where I want to address also the question about coloniality, decoloniality, and modernity. I think those kind of nostalgic uh, renderings of the socialist past are also dangerous. I mean, not only because nostalgia is a political project is always dangerous in the sense that it frequently produces reactionary movements who imagine an idyllic past that comes to be ruined and needs to be saved and salvaged Mm. again Mm. Um, but that aside I don't think that's the only utility of uh, uh, nostalgia I do think nostalgia can be deployed towards um, uh, an alternative leftist let's say a political project but that can only happen if we think of the socialist past um, more uh, honestly um, and from the margins of socialism if we consider what the socialist project did for and did to the Roma communities the Albanian communities we see a different history of the socialist project that emerged. That's not necessarily the kind of project that um, was uh, uh, utopic in any sense. Mm. On the contrary. And this is not a critique that comes out of post-socialism. This critique was already being made in socialism by people like Ali Ezebbegovic and Milika Salibegovic who were critiquing socialist development projects in the non-aligned movement, but especially in the Muslim world, as just another form of European modernity coloniality. I mean, for them, rather modernity arrived in its socialist or capitalist form, it made little consequence to the extent that it prevented them from developing an Islamic vision and futurity um, as a political community Mm. Um, and so in that sense what I mean by whitewashing the past is how modern narratives can be very hegemonic in writing the past and therefore exclusionary of other experiences Mm. especially experiences of racialized communities and I think bringing in these communities um, into uh, the history of the region will give us a different perspective on how things were but also and hopefully potentially of how things can be Mm. and I think without addressing that that tension that is always there and that it's always very palpable whenever you're in the room with post-Yugoslav academics, of course, um, without addressing the tension, it's impossible to kind of move on because the kind of... I mean, because, of course, the desire is to, to think about a Balkan commons, mm, right? Mm. And so the question I always have is, well, sure, I mean, I'm all for it. Let's think about the Balkan commons as a political project, mm. Uh, But let's also consider the kind of violence that was practiced in the name of brotherhood and unity and in the name of that sort of uh, political unity, Mm. like the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia or the failed project of the Balkan Confederation in the interwar period. Um, These weren't projects that uh, were emancipatory in any shape or form. I mean... They were projects that uh, were defined by the dominance of Christian slash secular Slavic majority or Orthodox majority countries mm. uh, for whom the existence of Roma and Muslim communities was always a question that needs to be resolved. Mm. And if you look at the history of the Socialist Party of Serbia, for instance... And its founding members it's interesting to see how even the um, proponents of socialism in uh, pre-Yugoslav Serbia uh, believe that the main political question that Serbia faces is dealing with its Muslim and Albanian minorities finding a solution to its Muslim and Albanian Mm. minorities Mm. and so This question is so relevant, yet so absent from the considerations of what the non-aligned project meant, or rather what Yugoslavia in the non-aligned project meant, Mm. and what the socialist project overall meant for non-aligned or unaligned uh, politics. And I call it whitewashing because these re-examinations of the socialist past are also done by Western academics who want to now re-examine, do a more progressive re-examination of the history of the region, having gone completely civilizational clashes in the 90s. And so it's kind of a redemption from them. But yet again, they're just reproducing the same tropes. Well
0: one of the results of this whitewashing that you talk about is that is it's erasure of decolonial struggles um, among those racialized groups that you've spoken about briefly um, uh, who sought to transcend the Cold War binaries through for example uh, pan-Islamic liberation and one of the examples that you talk about in detail is um, Alia Izabirgovic who for any listener who may not be aware, was the first president of uh, uh, the, in the, the independent state of Bosnia and Herzegovina after um, its referendum in 1992. Izad Begović expressed his dissatisfaction um, with the institutionalisation of Islam in Bosnia. What was interesting for me was how he linked this institutionalisation of Islam in Bosnia with coloniality. Um, Could you expand on what he meant by that or what he was... I mean,
1: it would be... I I wouldn't say coloniality because coloniality as a term or as a concept uh, he didn't use because it wasn't around then. But he thought along those terms and I think that's what's very important. Because when we think of the non-aligned history, what we are focusing on always is on the pan-Arab and Yugoslav socialist, modern project along the lines of Nasser and Tito. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And Izet Begovic, um, who I think was a brilliant thinker, because he questioned, like I said earlier, the foundations of such project having the same results as any kind of European modernity. And so for him, um, like I said, because I feel like I'm repeating myself, um, it wasn't decolonization wasn't a matter of adopting yet another form of European governance um, or European politics or European regime. Decolonization meant undoing um, the institutions and habits bequeathed by colonialism. And he was desperate to find models and ways to think through of how to get out of this, what he called colonial indemnity. That's a term he used. Um, And in this uh, uh, search for alternatives, he uh, becomes close to people like, I mean, not close in the sense that they knew each other, but associates with thinkers like um, uh, Jalal Ali Ahmad, who wrote Occidentosis, who was concerned more or less with the same issues about modernity in Iran as Izet Begovic was concerned at the same time in Yugoslavia, but also Latin American decolonial uh, thinking, And What's fascinating to see is that in his writing, especially in his prison notebooks, um, how much um, importance and attention and consideration he gives to uh, the history of colonialism, the history of settler colonialism, the political situation of decolonization movements in Latin America... um, but not from a non-aligned Yugoslav official standpoint, mm. but rather from a Muslim uh, decolonial perspective. Mm. Um, and so, this is an interesting movement. Um, and Izet Begovic is a, a prolific thinker of his prolific thinker of his time, because I think what it does is that it. Generates a critique for both Cold War camps but also for the non-aligned movement as well Mm. now having said all that I question to what extent this movement would have emerged had Yugoslavia not been part of the non-aligned movement because Yugoslavia's participation in the non-aligned movement uh, all the critiques that we just mentioned taken into account did allow Muslims from Yugoslavia to engage with Muslim thinking in the Middle East in particular but also the Maghreb or North Africa mm-hmm. uh, rather this was done by Palestinian students who studied at Yugoslav universities or Muslims from Yugoslavia who worked on development projects um, in the Middle East and North Africa mm. um, And so, this movement happens in the fringes of the non-aligned movement. And so, it's not accidental that, of course, Izet Begovic comes out of here. But his views on the Islamic institution, therefore, are part and parcel of this thinking of uh, uh, modern institutions being, uh, if not a direct product of European colonialism than inspired by uh, reforms, modernizing reforms in the late Ottoman Empire, like Mm. the Tanzimat reforms. So in any shape or form, modern institutions inevitably, especially the ones that try to channel um, a particular kind of Islamic practice, and I always find it difficult to use this terminology because, I mean you are a Muslim, there's no such thing as a particular Islamic practice. Mm, mm. So just the language that we use yeah. is also emblematic of what he was talking about. And so he worried about the institutionalization of Islam because he knew enough about what it had done in Morocco with uh, how the, the, the French uh, colonial regime uh, designed and devised through ethnographic and anthropological research uh, moroccan islam and centered it around um the authorities that were subservient to the colonial regime mm. and how powerful of a tool that was to subjugate uh morocco mm. uh as the french colony and this didn't just happen in morocco i mean this happened in egypt um it happened in afghanistan it happened in iraq and iran in palestine and so forth And so he was very suspicious of attempts, of modern attempts, to create Christian-like institutions Mm. for a faith that uh, is unlike Christianity, in part because it doesn't have that kind of structure and hierarchy. Mm. And he believed that um, the only type of Islam that could... Uh, provide a way out of this institutionalization uh, or let's call it the only way to decolonize the institutionalized Islamic practices was through something that he called folk upon Islamism because what he noticed was that the only um, practice of Islam that he observed that hadn't come under the institutional orthodoxy of Islam were villages that were too far away for the Islamic institution of Bosnia and Herzegovina to actually Mm, care mm, mm. and here he would encounter a different kind of um, community that practiced Islam outside of the sites and the regime of the Islamic community Mm. But I I mean I think this is relevant for Yugoslavia but having said that this was the case with This happened throughout the Muslim world, Mm. the resistance to the institutionalization of Islam. But I think I wanted to bring in Izabigovic, not only because it's relevant to think about the kind of decolonizing imaginaries that uh, he brought into conversation with other Muslim intellectuals and activists of the period, but also because the history of Muslim communities and their relationship to modernity and particularly socialist modernity mm. it 's usually overlooked
0: um, you talk about Eastern European Europeanness um, and um, uh, the book you you mentioned in the book that this Eastern European Europeanness is conditional or has been conditional on the genocide and violence against Muslim and Roma populations um, we've spoken at length about um, some of the themes relating to Muslim communities in the former Yugoslavia. Um, Thinking about Roma populations and communities, because um, you talk about them and their experiences a lot in the book, Um,
1: what does this violence look like? So it's structural and it starts from literally the demolition of your home. Uh, the displacement of not just you and your family but your entire community Um, the constant policing um, and uh, casual violence that go hand in hand Um, the explicit racist political projects that are aired on mainstream television and discussed in parliamentary debates such as um, the examples I mean, are many, but the ones I give in the book are, for instance, the Bulgarian former minister of defense wrote a manifesto on the integration of Roma populations, where he argued that we should build, um, reservation camps modeled after indigenous groups in the Americas and Australia, where they would be able to generate their own income, that we should offer free of charge sterilization for Roma women, um... And so, this kind of uh, material, uh, discursive, structural, and situational violence is a constant companion to uh, Roma people living in the Balkans. And I wouldn't say it's a post-socialist phenomena. It's uh, um, it's historic, um, in the sense that. Uh, during socialism there were no attempts to um, deal um, with the racialization of Roma populations on the contrary I would say um, it made uh, I I would even argue that the structural othering of Roma populations and their confinement into particular parts of town happened during socialism, and Skopje, Sofia, but also Belgrade, are all very very good examples of this. After Roma people in Skopje used to live in the center of town, and after the earthquake in Skopje, they not only built the city in the sense that they were the most underpaid workers that worked in construction to rebuild Skopje after the earthquake, um, but they were placed in the periphery of Skopje and told that after the city is rebuilt, they would be rehoused in the new buildings. And of course, that never happened. Uh, Roma communities never returned to the center of Skopje. Um, the case in Bulgaria is even more uh, shocking in the sense that in Bulgaria, you couldn't even mention the word Roma um, in official discourse or in state paperwork so the erasure there uh, was even more violent um and then you have other examples like the case of the post socialist post Yugoslav Slovenian independent state that erases uh, nearly 200,000 Roma citizens from its records um, so as not to give them citizenship and citizenship rights Mm. um So the forms of violence are, like I mentioned, many. um, And they are so normalized that even bringing this subject up um, can be easily dismissed as, well, yeah, that happens. Well, why Mm, does it happen? mm, mm. Um, And so... uh, to also clarify, Roma people are also racialized uh, by uh, Albanians and Bosnians and Muslims, groups that are racialized themselves, right? Mm. And so, because that's how whiteness works, uh, um, and it institutes this kind of hierarchies where some communities shore up their whiteness by continuously racializing um, other groups um, that they think are uh, racially more inferior to them. The question of Roma people is always absent and how their uh, displacement in particular was used in uh, the privatization processes to create uh, local and regional oligarchs uh, through the privatization of public housing but also public property um, that was designated for dwelling for Roma communities all of which in the post-socialist moment gets privatized and um, through very murky privatization processes um, to owners that claim that prior to socialism before their land was nationalized Mm. they were the owners of this land and Mm. now all the people that reside there have to be displaced Um, and so of course Um, you can't uh, claim that kind of those kind of land rights in countries like Bulgaria or Macedonia or Serbia unless you have very close ties to the regime because we of course know how corrupt Mm. the judiciary in particular Mm. and then the municipal governments in the Balkans are so um, I mean I don't think that what I've done in the book um, can address the uh, multiple forms of racialization but I think I wanted to start my book with the displacement of the Roma community in Asenovgrad mm. for two reasons um, one because I think any um, undertaking on the Balkans and racism and colonialism in the Balkans that does not address the Roma question Mm. isn't really doing anything because I think that's the key question Um, but also because um, I think the displacement of the Roma community in Asinovgrad is emblematic of what happens throughout the Balkans with Roma Muslim communities Mm. who come under the uh, become targets of state security violence um both because they're Roma and because they're Muslim mm. and so the uh, uh, the legitimization or the justification for their displacement in Bulgaria is frequently um, articulated through um narratives that uh, Roma uh communities have become uh, radical radicalizing nests or nests of uh, Islamic radicalism mm-hmm. um, and so that's another theme that I think gets frequently overlooked um, to think of Muslim and Roma as two separate communities even though the majority of Roma population, in Bulgaria, but also in former Yugoslavia, Mm -hmm. are Muslim. And so there's those dynamics there as well that I wanted to pay attention to.
0: There's one more uh, theme that I wanted to address, Um, and that is the way that queer bodies trouble the designated borders of the Euro-Atlantic enclosure, as you put it in the book. Um, How and why do queer bodies trouble those borders?
1: Well, because queers are (laughs) queer, right? I mean, they don't... uh, uh, they refuse this binary world of you belong to um one side or the other side. I mean, um, queer bodies are destabilizing heterosexuality and therefore all other political projects that are anchored mm-hmm. on heterosexuality and whiteness is one of them mm-hmm. uh, or patriarchy and so forth and so it's not accidental that uh, some of the most uh, important but also interesting interventions on uh, calling out and destabilizing this bordering and racist regimes have come from queer Mm. people, queer communities, Mm. queer artists and I use Aziz because of course he's my favorite but that doesn't mean that he's the only one but also because I think um Because he's the most prolific one in kind of taking on every issue Mm. and dropping a video on every single issue that happens.
0: Aziz, for anyone who doesn't know, is a Bulgarian, a queer Bulgarian artist. Yes. Um, Yeah.
1: Um, And because he provokes uh, the implicit ways in which Roma, Muslim or refugee communities are othered, Mm. even in leftist circles Um, particularly this because I mean this division of European and non-European is very powerful in the cultural discourse as well Mm. as it is I'm sure in Cyprus um, absolutely where uh, music that is uh, perceived as oriental as Turkish as Ottoman as having anything to do with arabesque mostly right Mm -hmm. um is considered as a pollutant of the supposedly pure folklore national folklore um and so that's one way in which by doing chalga which is the bulgarian version of that folk or turbo folk let's call it Mm -hmm. even though that's not necessarily what it is but that kind of arabesque the bulgarian version of arabesque um, by popularizing that music and frankly by resonating to people with that music mm. who were policed uh, of listening to that kind of music he already does something there mm. to destabilize this very clearly defined boundaries between supposed Bulgarian European folklore and remnants of Ottoman Oriental and Arabesque leftovers Mm, mm. Um, so he questions that but then that comes across throughout his performance in the sense that he also questions the gendered uh, the Eurocentric gendered world by Mm. cross-dressing and by um, gender-bending various kinds of uh, in various kinds of videos and performances and I think in the last couple of years like I mentioned he's been doing videos that are more directly connected to the politics in Bulgaria in particular but I would say also in the Balkans more general and so like if you look at his videos he's combating um this racist um, screams that um we are being invaded Mm. by uh, Arabs again or the refugee uh, threat is an Islamic threat and so forth Um, by creating everyday moments and visions in which people can find themselves in these situations to kind of combat the panic and fear that is unleashed through mass media Mm. and I think that's something very um, warm also in the way that he does it because he offers I mean in Motel for instance it's a bus full of which I'm sure you've seen maybe uh, you know like uh, all sorts of characters like old people, refugees, Muslims trans, queer all on the same bus uh, going through Sofia and I think that's a very important image um, in a place like Bulgaria in a time when you had protests throughout the country against quote-unquote Roma aggression Um, and the fact that it was such a popular video shows that he's able to touch people uh, in some ways that allows them to Override the panic, the racist mm-hmm. panic mm-hmm. Um, that dominates the political atmosphere. Um, but I mean this is just one of the one of the ways in which queers destabilize borders, but I think there's more radical ways. I think there's also, if you look at what the kind of solidarity that emerges on the fringes of the refugee movement or the Balkan route, between local sex workers and refugee sex workers. It's truly inspiring. I mean, this is in places like uh, Salonika or Belgrade. Um, and so, in part because uh, there's no, like, the, the the queers do not, I mean, I'm not, I'm, this is, I should say this with a, with a, um, <laughs> with, keep, keeping in mind that there are also homo nationalist formations because i don't oh, yeah. want to um, i don't want to romanticize the queer community as uh, being more well, radical mm-hmm. in their hospitality mm-hmm. because clearly there is also a parallel homo nationalist project that excludes queers uh, i mean that excludes sorry refugees and roma from their uh, political projects Prime Minister of uh, Serbia Yeah Being a key example Who's a lesbian that uh, Used to attend Belgrade Pride But also deny the genocide in Srebrenica mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so There's that there too And I've talked about that I think In my previous work as well mm-hmm. um, um, But I think in the book I also wanted to focus on Um queer interventions that destabilize mm-hmm. those projects mm-hmm. of whiteness of Europeanness, of nativeness mm-hmm. so to speak and that's also because queers don't feel uh native uh, truly anywhere mm-hmm. right and they don't belong to the various nationalist projects in the region um so they see it more or less mm-hmm. for for what it is and I think that influences also the kind of politics that emerge um, between, let's say, the undercommons Mm -hmm. uh, along the Balkan route.
0: Something that you talk about which I found fascinating um, was the Euro-Atlantic imposition of its own concept of sexual rights on the Balkans. This, to me, was one of the most interesting parts of the book because I believe we are all, myself included, conditioned into... You know, believing this Euro-Atlantic concept of sexual rights uh, to be the holy grail of progress. Um, can you explain what you meant or what you mean by this process of imposing a Euro-Atlantic uh, concept of sexual rights in the Balkans and elsewhere?
1: What I mean by it is that uh, the way in which LGBTQI rights are... Framed in the region or the way in which they're couched are not based on the lived experiences of these communities but rather on borrowed concepts and I'm not saying that we shouldn't borrow concepts, I mean concepts travel and I think that's great I think the problem is that they become very exclusionary projects that don't travel well within the community and so unless you are an urban, educated, middle-class, queer person, you won't be able to fully relate to the whole LGBTQI idea. Mm. Also, if you're an older queer person, um, and what this project is doing and what it's doing for the community. Mm. And I think they, a lot of the organizations in the region have become better at this but in their beginnings and they weren't too long ago let's say a decade or so ago they were also rather intentionally or unintentionally instrumentalized in um, creating further divisions within communities rather than um, accepting the communities for what they were in what way? so for instance um if a homophobic attack happened in Sarajevo or in Kosovo, it was Islamic fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. But if it happened in Belgrade, it was nationalists. Mm. And so what makes the homophobe in Sarajevo and in Pristina an is, an, an Islamic mm. fundamentalist and the homophobe in Serbia a mere nationalist? Mm. And so I think this was part of a larger trend where... Um, Muslim countries in particular were labeled as homophobic Um, and I mean, other people have written about this obviously, Jasbir Puar's homonationalism being the most Mm -hmm. significant work in this sense but I think this happened across the Muslim world in one form or another and in the Balkans it manifested itself in a very ugly Mm -hmm. form. Because I think it's impossible to kind of ask for rights by denying the rights of others. Mm -hmm. And so there were no collaborative or cross-sectional efforts uh, to negotiate uh, uh, the kind of political project, joint political project, um, against the post-socialist privatization reforms and neoliberal reforms that created immense poverty um, and competition for funding, naturally that was coming from the mostly EU but also the US in the region so, I mean that's one way to think about what I mean by the uh, uh, inserting sort of a very particular kind of LGBTQI political agenda but I think what this does is that it also creates a very secular trajectory of sexual rights. Mm-hmm. And so a good example of this, I was in Vienna about three weeks ago at a conference on Yugoslav and post-Yugoslav queer and feminist movements. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing there about any kind of uh, sexuality and subjectivity that predates the arrival of western sexual rights and feminist movements Mm -hmm. and it kind of if you were just an outsider listening to the conference you would think that there was no such thing as sexual queer or homosexual lesbian or trans life Mm. in the region until like the late 80s Mm. which is obviously not true Mm -hmm. and It's not true because we know people who lived in that period and who had social lives. Mm. And this is not to say that uh, it was easy and that in many parts of the socialist world they were criminalized, Um, but rather that that social life existed. And it's important to think about what that... Uh, let's call it retroactively or retrospectively rather what that queer life looked like in the past because I mean queers have their own uh, kinship and passing of uh, information uh, language mm-hmm. uh, mode of being in the world mm-hmm. and I think I wanted to bring out some of these histories um, to account for also queer history of uh, the region that generally gets elated or um, disregarded Mm. and I wanted to do that because if queers don't do their own history obviously it's not going to be the National Institute of Historiography that's going to do the queer history and so um it wasn't so much uh, a political project to suggest that we should all return to the Ottoman times when people were casually writing homoerotic poems to their next door neighbor, yeah, you know, because I think there's something very reactionary in also imagining that somehow queers in that period weren't persecuted mm-hmm. as they were uh later, but to rather deal with erasure. And uh, think how those traces of those communities, um, uh, the durabilities of those, trace- those traces and those communities, um, permeate in contemporary queer social life. Mm.
0: Although if anyone listening does want to write a homoerotic poem to their neighbor, by all means, <laughs> go ahead. Um, final question, and then you're free. Um Yesterday we heard that the European Assembly has approved and you mentioned this earlier uh, visa liberalization for Kosovo meaning that by 2024 visa-free travel is expected to be in place. Um is Kosovo now as its former prime minister Ramush Haradinaj claimed in 2018 a Euro Atlantic nation.
1: I mean unfortunately yes I guess. <laughs> it's uh um it was, I guess, the last country in Europe to be allowed to travel freely in Europe. Mm. And, I mean, what's fascinating is that how uh, the, the demands for Bosnia and Kosovo are always very set, very, very... Um, uh, by Kosovo and Bosnia are, have a very low bar, of course. Uh, It's like, okay, so you get visa-free travel in Mm. Europe and this is a cause for celebration. And I mean that in and of itself shows the fact that this has to be addressed as news Mm. that people from Kosovo are free to travel I mean, that alone in and of itself is telling of the kind of politics of enclosure, I guess, that I'm trying to address in the Mm. book. Mm. And Um, what that does for people who travel through the Balkan route what that kind of discourse does to remind people that yes, you, unlike the refugees have access now to the European Union Mm -hmm. at the price of policing your borders Mm -hmm. we trust you enough now that you are going to police your borders That you're not going to be a problem traveling in the EU and so I mean I can't think of a more uh, racialized discourse than uh, borders the way in which movement of people is negotiated in racial terms Mm. and explicitly so Um, it's pretty so depressing
0: it's so depressing
1: (laughs) I mean it's depressing yes but I think it's uh, also a reality that uh, people in the region will have to grapple with because um, even though they've been making these promises for 20 or 30 years Mm. we all know that they don't deliver on the promises I mean if that was the case um, countries that joined the European Union would have not been in the situation that they are now, like Croatia, like Bosnia, like Hungary, mm. and in many ways, I think they're worse off. Mm.
0: Um, no, Bosnia is not part of the EU.
1: Well, Bo- Bosnia is not, but I mean Bulgaria, hung- Hungary, and uh, Croatia. Yeah. And so, I don't know that. Uh, I mean, it's yes, it's depressing to think about how the bar- the border violence discourse operates. But I also am confident that this can't be a long political project because it not only fails to deliver, um, but it also does not offer a kind of emancipatory futurity that it sees the region for what it is, Mm -hmm. also geopolitically. Mm -hmm. And... The idea that you are going to simply seal the border, I mean, it's so its so ridiculous because it doesn't work. Mm. And all it takes is driving through the region to realize that it's just not going to be possible for this to happen. Mm. And yet, every year we see increased budgets, doubling, tripling budgets, uh, drone technology... Uh, sensory technology and I mean yes it has made the journey far more dangerous and it has changed the route but this doesn't mean that the movement of people has Mm. stopped Mm. because I mean you can't stop people from moving especially in the peripheries where um, the distinction between self and other are far more porous and more complicated than the metropolitan distinction of self and other
0: on that note Piero, thank you so much for your time that was uh, an amazing conversation
1: thank you thank you for having me
0: Thank you to our listeners for your ongoing support. Don't forget to subscribe to our Spotify channel so that you don't miss out on future episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Scroll Online to stay up to date with our latest content. I'm Giorgio Constandi. This is The Scroll. Until next time.